Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bandari from Ortho Evidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Well, good morning, Mo. I understand that uh, you, you're just so busy running around fulfilling your duties as a consultant as well as running a surgical department that you haven't had time to have any coffee this morning. No, but, I, I, uh, I have not. I have not. But I'm hoping you've had two, at least one for yourself and one for me. I have had a cup and a half and I've got my ortho Joe uh, with me. But before we do our uh, very frequent what's caught your eye of interest in your publication session. I just wanted to point out that I'm still, in essence, pondering uh, the conclusions of our Ortho Joe session on uh, physician attire in patient care, as well as in scientific presentations. And I, I haven't decided which side I'm gonna come down on the argument yet, but I just wanted to point out to you and those that are watching, that I have my JBJS tie, but I've gone full retro with the three-piece suit I, today. I, um, I just to show that. you how bad it could be <laughs> with uh, geezers like myself who are stuck on this this perhaps insignificant issue of professionalism of physician attire. So I'm just there. It is the three-piece suit. You've probably never seen one. You're so young. But. You know what? Oh no, no. I I, I know, it. and it's just, it's very distinguished. It's very distinguished. <laughs> I mean, I I think the only thing that could make you more distinguished is a cape and a monocle. And if you have a cape and a monocle, <laughs> no cape, no monocle. Um, <laughs> and I good. I'm not sure I could grow a good enough beard to, to pull that off. But it's just. No, but I'll, I'll consider it. I'll I'll consider it. But I'm I'm still pondering the that issue of ortho joe and yeah it's a hope good others found it of interest as well so what's been on your mind uh, recently uh from ortho uh, evidence perspective or you or you were going to do i guess the second part of the uh, ota uh, yeah you know right? what yeah you know what I, I mean so you know we, we've got a couple of a couple of uh, options here and that you know and i actually wouldn't be you know, at at uh, taking sort of a co-moderator license, I'd love to hear more about what you um, were going to talk about. But my mine was going to be highlights from again some trials presented at the recent trauma meeting, the Orthopedic Trauma Association, specifically focusing on, you know, the uh, important but question that gets asked a lot and it's been recycled has been, you know, what do we do with the humeral shaft fracture? operate or not? And if we operate, what do we do? So there was about three or four studies that had informed that. Mark, I'm happy to, I've got a few slides. Yeah, keep for going. That. Yeah, keep, keep going. going. I, okay. I've got a longstanding interest in this. Many years ago in the 90s, we did an RCT at Harborview Medical Center when I was chief there on nails versus uh, plates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. okay. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So, so, so uh, okay. So let me, let me just walk you through. I've got slides up uh, here. And I'll, you know, for those who are going to be listening via a podcast, I'll make sure that I'm clear about what they present. But again, we focus now in our second edition of, of, of um, installment of the Insight and Ortho Evidence, some highlights. And you know, I've taken some original uh, work, and and we decide sometimes that there's work that's important that's non-RCT that's still important enough to present. But there was a cohort observational study of 390 patients uh, presented from the Netherlands that fundamentally found the following, that you know when they looked at a bunch of, of patients followed forward, and the, the acronym is called the HUMMER study, H-U-M-M-E-R, um, that primary osteosynthesis of the humeral shaft fractures in adults was both a safe and superior 
to non-operative treatment. It should therefore be the treatment of choice. Ultimately, we saw that the symposium really promoting operative treatment of humeral shaft fractures. In fact, they said it's associated with a more than twofold reduced risk of non-union, better and earlier functional recovery, and better ra uh, range of motion of the shoulder and elbow compared to non-operative. So certainly, you know, you started seeing this push. Now, this was an observational study. So we said, okay, well, fair enough. You know, what else yeah. is out there? And the same symposium, Mark, uh, you know, the Calgary group, uh, from Canada, uh, part of a multi-center study, also did an analysis, a randomized trial of 168 patients where basically they looked at the same thing, improved shoulder and elbow range of motion, and early return to work occurs following open reduction internal fixation of humeral diaphyseal fractures. So they really, again, in a small trial, but still an important one, promote that. Cost effectiveness was also evaluated at the same meeting. And this is, again, work coming out of um, uh, the UK Edinburgh where they basically are making the argument, a bold one, that if we were to look at all humeral shaft fractures and fix all of them without really just anyone that, you know, that comes in gets fixed, it still may appear to be cost-effective at five years post-injury, considering all of the, the, you know, the, the potential issues with reoperations in the non-operative group. They also say if we can even get better at deciding which patients are more likely to have a risk of non-union, so that patient at risk, that cost-effectiveness gets even greater keep going. There's another study yeah. that presented, you know, a meta-analysis of 292 patients that basically says what I think has been the real uh, promotional factor. Surgery may confer an earlier functional advantage to adults with humeral shaft fractures, but this is, a, you know, it's an early advantage. So, you know, at one year, you're not seeing that functional gain, but the lower risk of non-union reintervention there is a potential higher risk of transient radial nerve palsy. So that becomes the trade-off. This again was more work presented by Tim White and the group out of the UK. Going back to work that we had done back in 2006, and I, and I, I know um, this was included a trial that, that, that your group had done around that time as well. You know, at the end of the day, when we looked at compression plating, you know, risk that the risk reduction with plating versus nailing was pretty high, right? So one reoperation could be presented for every 10 patients who are treated with plates compared to an intramedullary nail. So I'll stop there. There's a lot of stuff um, that I just uh, sent on, uh, mentioned, but the principal mark from this whole meeting was that, you know, the issue of non-operative treatment came under some considerable scrutiny. Um, yeah. And that, that's an interesting point. And again, plates still remain um, the gold standard, at least based on the evidence that was presented at this year's OTA. Yeah, I think your concluding citation there is a really important one for the audience is, is there is a substantial risk of transient radial nerve palsy. And when we consider best managed for an individual patient, we should be discussing this regardless of the surgical approach. Of course, it's a little more common posteriorly with that approach than it is anterolateral, but uh, it is a real thing. And so I'm going to ask you, somebody who's invested the last two decades at least of your career in large trials, is it time for a yeah. large international multi-center trial to finally <laughs> settle this question? I, I think you're right. I mean, if you look at what's been done, I mean, you know, when, when you see so many uh, studies, albeit there's a lot of work coming out of the UK, if you saw the, the number of patients, uh, you know, studies that are coming out, meta-analysis, cost-effectiveness, all from the same group, basically, uh, you know, it does suggest that there's probably interest in doing that, and it's probably going to be happening. Um, and you're probably right, for the most part, that we're going to likely need to see something larger. It's a very common fracture. So yeah. I don't know, there's no reason why we couldn't collaborate and do this. And I suspect, as we're speaking, there are groups right now doing exactly that. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's, it's, it's time. And it's probably looking at those citations, which you put up, it's probably going to be somewhere between 600 and a thousand in each arm. Um, yeah. And then the question is, do we do surgical versus non-surgical or do we focus on plate versus nail? So this is where you start getting into efficiency, right? And you can yeah. almost think about that's the psychology of, you know, you, you take all patients, all patients come in, they're randomized to operative, non-operative. Of the operative, they're randomized again to yeah. uh, approach. You could think of that as one of the options. Now, that's going to require a considerable number of patients and, uh, you know, a considerable operation to get that going in terms of, you know, this, the methodology and the funding. But that would be an efficient design or something similar. Sure. Uh, where you're using, you know, endpoints. I know we're starting to talk about, we talked a lot about existing databases and administrative databases and collecting outcomes data on reoperations. Although I'm not sure how often, you know, transient radial nerve palsy would be recorded in a lot of databases. So th some of those things, you know, depending on the outcome, we may right. need to be doing much more traditional data collection techniques. Yeah, I think so, because if the nerve palsy is transient and it doesn't require tendon transfers, it's probably not going to show up in most databases. Correct. Uh, yeah. Um, so uh, particularly with the way we generally manage those with expect expectancy and maybe a, a, a bracing period, but we certainly don't do much uh, other than reassure the patient. Uh, right. Well, that's uh, very interesting. And Thankfully, our orthopedic trauma community internationally has gotten so used to doing these uh, collaborative trials. I, I think it, we can do it because uh, we've yeah. done it with so many other topics. And, Absolutely. Uh, and we're, we're fairly successful at it. I dare say more so than some of the other subspecialty communities, but they're all improving. Every single one of them. You can go right down the list, uh, shoulder, shoulder, elbow, uh, sports, uh, on and on and on we're really improving as a orthopedic community. And you know what we're doing a lot of too, and I think you're going to speak to this is we started moving into big data sets and even getting into the predictive modeling in terms of, you know, what's encoded in us from the day that we're born, right? The idea yeah. of, which I think you're going to speak about next, yeah. which is this genome wide types of association studies. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that is, you know, as we start looking into the future, it looks like it's the new domain of yeah. where we're going. However, there are real risks. And so I'm sure we'll have some chat about that too. Yeah. Well, thanks for the introduction, uh, Mo. Uh, and uh, so I'm, I am uh, going to be speaking about this article for those of you looking on video. It's the, from the November 2nd issue of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery entitled Genome-Wide Association Study of Adhesive Capsulitis Suggests Significant Genetic Risk Factors from the Hospital for Special Surgery Group. Uh, Scott Rodeo is the uh, senior author, and it's a very, very interesting study. Uh, we know that adhesive capsulitis of the shoulder has been associated with hypothyroid disease as well as uh, diabetes, and it tends to be more common in the female sex. And what this group of investigators did was they used the UK Biobank, which has been used in a number of musculoskeletal condition studies, looked at 500,000 patients with their genetic data and their ICD-10 uh, codes for disease. And they compared 2,142 patients with ICD-10 code for adhesive capsulitis uh, to those without uh, the same number. And they looked at these uh, genome-wide associations, controlling for the two known risk factors of adhesive capsulitis, hypothyroidism, and diabetes that did logistic re regression. And what they came up with was three loci of significance 
Yeah, even after controlling for hypothyroid and uh, diabetes, it's a very, very interesting study, which concludes the total genetic risk associated with adhesive capsulitis was significant and similar to the risk associated with hypothyroidism and diabetes. And they identified these three genes, which implies the WINT pathway. So very, very interesting study. And we've seen others with uh, osteoarthritis looking at the risk factors using the same uh, UK biobank. And it, it seems to me that, you know, when we, we consider large multi-center trials on whatever condition, whether it's a, a injury condition or whether it's a, a, a disease condition, that individual genetics has got to play a role uh, in, in not only the disease severity, but response to treatment, et cetera. So my question for you is, when are we going to be at the level where we are looking at the genetics of the patient as we involve them in multi-center interventional trials? How, how far off is that? I don't think it's very far off at all. And I must say, you know, um, it, it's a very timely topic. So in the last month or two, you know, there's been a lot of cardiovascular groups at our mm -hmm. institution looking at, you know, uh, genome specific or genome wide association studies. So I must say, I, I, I was a little ignorant to really the methodology. It is yeah. a complex methodology yeah. with a very clear pathway. And if you look at a host of different groups, I mean, um, there's lots of great publications, one in nature, for example, that talks about, you know, sort of the pearls and the potential perils. But just for just for the audience, if I could, if you'll indulge me, Mark, I, I yeah. have a couple little excerpts I'd like to share with you about genome wide. First of all, for those of you who are listening in, somewhat like me, maybe a couple of months ago was what exactly is a mm -hmm. genome wide association study? What they're doing, as I understand, is they're testing hundreds of genetic variants across many genomes to find these statistically associated with some sort of specific trait. And we've seen great things happen. You know, uh, obesity has had, you know, this type of study linked to understanding, you know, what is the genetic uh, variant associated with it? Crohn's disease had right. similar. So there's a huge uh, value to this. But here's the challenge I think we face, and it's the issue with the Bonferroni correction. Let me read this one passage for you. Okay. Testing millions of associations between individual genetic variants and a phenotype of interest requires a very stringent multiple testing threshold to avoid false positive. And that's that whole issue of the phishing experiment, data dredging, standard with any large databases that we look. So there's been projects, one called the International HapMap Project, that's done this. And here's what they found. They said that there's at least... 1 million or close to that independent common genetic variants across the human genome on average. What does that mean? You have to correct your p-value roughly by that number of different <laughs> potential common associations. So guess what the new p-value for a statistically significant finding would be in, in a standard genome-wide association study? P less than 5 to the 10 to the negative 8. So go back eight zeros. That is getting to the point where we're starting to get rid of that variability. So as with anything, the challenge we're always going to face is one, do we have a, you know, do we have a big enough sample size to do this, which I think you do. And number two is, are we appropriately not coming up with what we're calling, you know, false positives. And so another thing we have to be doing more of Mark is we have to making sure as I suspect happened in this study, is that there's an independent validation cohort with the same stringent p-value. So if you see it twice, it starts looking more like something. But they talk about you know the idea of doing these independent tests, like just like we do in anything else where you're validating it. So yeah. for me, I think it's hugely important. It's a huge advance. But 
with that huge advance, we have to have a lot of caution how we interpret all these positive findings. Yeah, it's really a variation of the discussion we've been having on machine learning. Basically, it's a statistical uh, issue, and yeah. we have to be really, really sure for we're controlling well for all the potential influences on right. the result. Right. Well, I think we'll be talking about this for a few years. That would be my guess. So easily, easily. But it, it's it's always a pleasure for me to give you the opportunity to prove to the audience that you you really are more than just a trauma surgeon that you're interested in genetics and <laughs> the whole issue of human you, you quoted cardiology so all of human medicine you're you're really the renaissance man of, and you know, of medicine and, and, you know, and you know Mark I do that without a tie and just a sweater just a sweater uh, just a warm sweater you know just reminding <laughs> everyone it's winter it's winter in Canada it's coming <laughs> the debate goes on <laughs> well that's good. Well, I'm going to enjoy the rest of my coffee and hope you can find some and uh, have a good rest of your day. You too. Take care. Have a great okay. day. Okay. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. Cheers.